If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time and we have a huge body of work to get through today, John. Uh, we're going to talk about management. Oh, I don't like the way you say that, Mike. A body of work. Oh, no, no, a not for me. A body of work to get through. We've, yeah, no, 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 we have. But you know what, John? I'm still part of my European tour at the moment. Good. I am in Somerset. <laughs> I actually realized I'm actually in Glastonbury, but I'm a week late. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're there for the tidy up, are you? <laughs> I'm there for the tidy up. I'm there for the plastic bottles. I was walking past a place called Shepton Mallet last night, oh, John. Oh, yes, sounds the great. deepest Somerset. And I don't know if you ever saw Translations by Brian Freeman. I did, yes. He play, yeah. right? And there was a really fascinating moment. So basically two Brits are sent over to Donegal to do a geometric survey of Donegal yeah. for the British standard map-making outfits and the British Army. And, of course, the, the Brits are intrigued by our Irish names, like, you know, Dundrum, Dunleary for yeah. Irish names for, yeah. uh, and they find them really weird. And the Irish lad says, yeah, yeah, but what about names like Shepton Mallet? Right? And you can imagine... <laughs> Western Supermare. <laughs> exactly. If you're from the Gale Talk in Donegal, yeah. these names sound so bizarre to you. Anyway, but by the way, actually, if you ever get the chance to see Brian Friel's translation, it's an amazing, amazing play. And it's all about things that get lost in translations, where cultures meet each other, where cultures overlap upon each other, and where... Just the way in which we're brought up in various different cultures shadows or changes the way in which mm. we actually see the world. It's well, well worth seeing. Well worth seeing. One of the great, one of the great came from that. You know that amazing school in Derry that produced so many. I think it's called St. Columns. You're right. So it produced Brian Friel, mm. John Hume, Seamus Heaney, all at the same time, all in the same class. Were they in the same you know, class? Two Nobel Prize winners wow. in the same bloody class. It's an amazing school. I mean, the list is as long as your arm, not mine, <laughs> which, as you know, as being a lanky fella is very long, but it's a, an amazing place. Anyway, I am here in, uh, and I'm, I'm, do you know what I'm marveling at, John? It's the colour of buildings here in Somerset. They use a, an amazing honey kind of coloured limestone. Have you ever noticed that in, that's, in England? That's a type of sandstone, though, isn't it? Well, you know, I did a bit of research on it. Oh, oh. And it's, oh. It's, it's, a, it's a stone from a place called Ham Hill, John. And... 
Ham Hill in Yeovil in Somerset. This is my Yeovil. latest thing. Stone masonry. Stone right. masonry. You know, when you wake up in England, this part of England is very, very, very lush. Very it's gorgeous. Green. Yeah, gorgeous. And uh, we're actually going to talk about, in the management thing, we're also going to talk a little bit about English mismanagement, right? Right. Because Thames Water, right, mm-hmm. has gone bust. How does a public utility go bust? But this was one of Thatcher's great um, projects, wasn't it? To, to privatise all these utilities. To privatise everything. Yeah. So she privatised the waters, right? Imagine it. I, I remember the day the it went private, actually. Did you crack open a bottle of champagne in <laughs> Fulham where you were living? Put on your red braces. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had cider like you down to Westcutbury. Oh, the, the, the cider, it actually is very good down here. It, it is, is very good. And the accents are great. I mean, yeah. they think we speak funny. They should hear themselves. <laughs> Hilarious. Anyway, anyway, but I want to talk to you about management in general. And I want to focus first on the RTE carry-on. Right? Oh, don't Just get carry me on, started. Carry-on, out, whatever. And how the lack of any financial controls in the state bleeds into inflation in the rest of the country. Because I'm trying to explain, a week ago, before this broke, a statistic came out from the EU that said that Ireland is the most expensive country in Europe. Not in the EU, not in the Western Europe, in the whole of Europe, right? Right. Now, Irish people listening to this will understand that. And the question is, how can you be in a rich country? How can you live in a rich country and still feel poor? And this is one of the dilemmas that many people ask me, even on the street, like, how does that, how do you explain? Mm. And what I'm going to do today, John, is I'm going to link the RTE salary carry-on to the rate of inflation through the mechanism of the state not being able to control its own costs. And the reason the state is so hugely, hugely, hugely important is the state is still the biggest buyer of everything in Ireland. You know, every country, the state is 30%. If you you think like state spending is 30%, 40% of GDP. So, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge part. So if the state can't control its spending at the higher and lower end, it bleeds into the rest of the cost base of the economy. Right. But what I'm not going to do, John, is go point the finger all at the public sector because it also happens hugely in the private sector. I'm going to use the Thames Water example in England yeah. of what happens in the private sector when greedy gobshites get hold of a utility and they <laughs> extract money out of the utility all the time. I'm going to explain how the whole thing works. And then Good. finally, I'm going to talk to you, John, about the Wimbledon model of economics because Wimbledon is starting this week, John. Yes, it is. Right. I used to love Wimbledon. We, we lived in Wimbledon, actually, for, for uh, quite a few years when I moved to London first. Loved living there. Yeah. And it's very lush and it green. Was, it was gorgeous, yeah. I mean, there's Wimbledon Town and, and Wimbledon Village. But during the tennis week, it was just full of the beautiful people. Oh, yeah. No, I'm sure. Yeah, and the pubs were full. It was just always Tonnets of strawberries oh, and deuce. Yes. And indeed. 30 love and all that stuff. cream, the whole lot. But, John, what I'm going to explain to you is how Ireland is the Wimbledon economy. So think about Wimbledon, right? <laughs> well, the beautiful people. <laughs> that, but exactly, the beautiful, although you should see the state of the, the, the pair of us this morning. I believe you were on a lad's lunch yesterday, John. Uh, yes, a very extended lunch. <laughs> An extended lunch. It was a lunch involving buckets of red wine. Buckets of red wine and talking absolute bollocks all day. Well, bollocks. Well, it's red wine just fuels bollocks. Yeah. But the reason I'm going to talk about Wimbledon, the final bit of the, of the podcast today, is going to be, think about Wimbledon, right? The Brits host Wimbledon. It's one of the great tennis tournaments of the world, mm. except no Brits ever do well in it. Yeah. So what well, they do... Apart so from Andy to, Murray. So think of this, yeah, but I mean, every now and then, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, every yeah. Now and then. true, true. But they true. host the best. So so basically, it's, it's, it's a way of looking at the economy, right? 
Think about hosting the best companies in the world. So Ireland is the Wimbledon economy. We host all these brilliant companies, but very few Irish companies compete at that level. And the reason this is important to keep in the back of your head as a model for the economy is when we get to the end of this podcast, what I'll try to explain is how the RTE salaries leaking in to the cost base of the country, as emblematic of, not specifically, mm. but emblematic of, means the economy moves more and more towards the Wimbledon model. And by that, I mean small Irish businesses, which have to be the backbone of every economy, get elbowed out when the cost base rises. Yeah. And only those businesses that have a massive tax arbitrage game going on, which is the multinationals, can survive. So the reason this is important is not just that it impacts inflation, the cost of living, which is absolutely crucial, but also it impacts on the ability of the Irish domestic sector to grow at a time when our cost base goes out of kilter, which is why the Ryan Tuberty and D Forbes and Noel Kelly, right? Yep. And, and all the rest of them, right? All their salaries has a manifest and material impact into the overall economy and everyone's life. So it's not just about getting indignant about who gets paid what, right? Yeah. It's actually drawing the links between that and economic performance and the exchange rate or the lack of the exchange rate and expenditure and inflation and the economic model. That's really good. But perhaps we should actually start with, for people who are not familiar with this RTE saga, a quick explanation on that. Okay. So, so John and I both worked at RTE. Yes, we did. We were, <laughs> I presented an afternoon chat show on RTE yeah. called The Big Fight, which was a total laugh. I tell you, it was one of the best jobs I ever had. Because we were, we were doing four shows a week, we had mm. to cover everything. Yeah. So yeah, you'd, have yeah, like, yeah. you'd be interviewing politicians one on the one hand and then talking to transgender somebody on the other hand, then talking to Albans down the country about something, then up to Northern Ireland. It was great did fun. You, did you have a little fun. cooking segment in it as well? All those shows always have a little <laughs> cooking segment. I, oh, jeez, I should have done that. You know, I could have actually you progressed trick, past this. You missed the trick. I could have progressed past the scrambled eggs and toast <laughs> approach to my fine culinary menu, right? But anyway, so John and John was a sound a sound engineer in, in RTE. So we, we, know, we know the place. And there are tales to tell. Just let's say... Everything that has been revealed about RTE management does not shock us. Is that fair to say, John? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Don't get me started because my blood was boiling okay. all week. So just so you know, RTE is the public broadcaster in Ireland, right? It's the BBC. And it, it's the BBC, except it operates in all Irish things as a hybrid model. So the BBC and many, many public broadcasters only get their money from the state in a license fee, and there is no advertising. RTE, in a classic Schlieveen Irish move, manages to get money from the state and gets money from advertisers. Yeah. So it is. it should be the most well-financed public broadcast company in the world. But it is always broke, right? So how do you actually reconcile these two things, right? So what you normally have is if you've got a totally private company, raises money for advertising, has cost control, tries to make a profit. Or you have a totally public sector company, gets all its money from the state, has some cost control, tries to give dividends back to the shareholder, which is the state, right? Yeah. RTE, on the other hand, gets money from everywhere, makes bollocks of cost control, and is always bust. Yeah. So this is the, so this is the background. So that's the company. Now, the way they do it is they pay their talent rather than being... PAYE employees, 
which they should be given that they work exclusively for one company, the state broadcaster. They have all decided to set up companies so that they are companies rather than employees. Yes. And then on top of that, you have the situation whereby the main talent, the main presenters act and negotiate through agents, through an agent, which is not unusual. Yeah. But what makes it unusual here, John, is that there's only one buyer, which is the state company. Yeah. And there's only one agent as well. And he manages all of the the top guys in RTE. And so he basically holds the purse strings and the power in RTE. Right. And so he goes in and his big threat, which is entirely bogus. Yeah. And so he says, my geniuses, who are uniquely talented, unbelievably talented, nobody else in the whole world can do it, right? My ma could present the late late. <laughs> I'm really serious, yeah. right? Or any of those shows, right? Sanders would make a brilliant presenter. Not only are they uniquely talented, but outside RTE, there is a vibrant media landscape just ready to pick up these talents if you don't pay them an extraordinary amount. Yeah. But we know that's not the case. Yeah. The dogs in the street know it's not the case. Exactly. But the RTE management are so supine and servile and appalling with the way in which they deal with public money that they have always bent over and paid up. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, this scandal is due to another company being set up in the UK where monies were funneled into that company for consultancy when they were actually going in to pay Ryan Tuberty's wages. Yeah. And then, of course, the question is everyone looks at all the various different things. So that's that if you're not, if you've been living outside of Ireland, none of this makes sense to you. If you've been living in Ireland, you must have been under a stone for the last 10 days not to know. So, so, so what happened in this particular case was that RTE went on a big cost cutting spree a few years ago with lots of redundancies, closures and pay cuts and all the rest. And in fairness, all the top presenters took their 10 or 15 percent pay cuts or so we thought. And they made a big deal out of it at the time, including Ryan Tuberty. But in actual fact, it turns out that he actually negotiated a secret top-up payment through a London-based company from an RTE slush fund. Okay, that's the whole thing. And the person involved in this is a woman called Dee Forbes, who was the director general. Yeah, and they hung her out to dry because they're spineless gits. Oh, yeah. It also turns out that they were giving ad clients huge sweeteners worth hundreds of thousands, all taxpayers' money. As Bertie used to describe it, a sweetheart deal, John. <laughs> right? So essentially, Mac, this is not the usual late, late show shite <laughs> of one for everyone in the audience. This is 345 grand extra for Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that's the scenario. Yeah. But the reason this is important is the following. Well, there's many reasons it's important and let's other people get shouting and roaring about this. I mean, yeah. on the presenters, all I say is they're made good because of the audience they inherit from the company that is RTE. Mm. It's actually, it's a largely static business. That's why one should always be very skeptical about equating them to their audience. Yeah. Their audience was delivered to them, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the whole thing. That's what's going on in the background. But the key issue, John, is if a state has an inability to manage its costs, and if a state pisses other people's money up against the wall, we have a serious problem. So we're going to call it fiscal incontinence, John. (laughs) Right, okay. This may well be, you know that there's a very well-known adage in public speaking that middle-aged men should never get up in public and speak with chinos on. 
Right. I didn't know that. Because of stains and leaks. Okay? Oh, I see. This okay. Yes. I'm just, so, so just, just, just saying, I'm just checking my chinos now. Exactly. Just keep that image of incontinence in your head, John. Okay. So imagining this sort of leaking that happens in, in the core space. So okay. for example, you know, it's that idea of, you know, the, the urinary tract disorder yes. that middle-aged men get. Well, this is a pecuniary tract disorder that middle-aged companies get. Okay. Right. So just keep that in your head. Okay. So they keep leaking money, right? Yeah. And what happens is when they leak money, because the state is so big, this pushes up pressure, cost pressures everywhere else in the country. So the link, John, in this podcast is between the state's inability to exercise cost control and the general rate of inflation, which has been building since 2001. And I'm going to do a little bit of economic theory here, right? Right. The reason 2001 is important is that's the last year we use the punt, our own currency, right. and we join the euro. So when you're in a small open economy, inflation comes through largely through the exchange rate. So I'll explain that to you, right? So when a small country has an exchange rate, the exchange rate is the most important price in the market, right? Everything else is secondary. Yep. And the reason is because the exchange rate prices imports. And small open economies like Ireland have a massive, massive amount of imports and a massive amount of exports. So the exchange rate is the price. So what happens basically if the economy is growing, if the Irish economy is growing faster than other economies, right? Demand in the economy is growing. What will happen is the rate of inflation will begin to tick upwards. Yeah. Then the central bank in that country will raise interest rates. By raising interest rates, what they will do is they will increase the exchange rate relative to other exchange rate. So the exchange rate of that small country goes up. When the exchange rate of that small country goes up, the price of imports go down. So imported inflation goes down, and that's how the economy adjusts from high to low inflation through the exchange rate. Okay, right? okay. Which is why giving up your exchange rate, which we did by joining the euro, is of huge consequence to the way you run the economy. Mm. So you have to do a totally mental shift between the way in which you run the economy with an exchange rate and the way in which you run an economy in a monetary union. And the whole central bank has a different function then in, in the economy. The central bank has a completely different function, but much more importantly, the entire government apparatus, so the central bank, the Department of Finance, all the big departments of state need to understand that the discipline imposed by the exchange rate is gone. Yeah. So you have this discipline that the exchange rate basically prices and you can use the exchange rate to actually protect yourself in a very significant way against inflation outside by raising your yeah. your rate of interest and raising your exchange rate. Once you lose that ability, you have to actually do a mental jump, right? And say, okay, we've lost the discipline of the exchange rate. So what anchors inflation in the country? Now, this is hugely important for Ireland because Ireland, when we joined the euro, went from having inflation and a cost of living around the average European level to now being the most expensive country. So what happened and what's the link to the exchange rate and what's the link to RTE, yeah. right? This is our question, Yes, right? yes, yes. So the link is the following, right? When you don't have an exchange rate, you need to impose discipline on the economy in some other way. How you do that is you impose discipline on government spending. Not the actual quantum of government spending because you still have to build roads and bridges and internets and la la la, right? Mm. You build all that, right? But the value for money. Yeah. So that 
every single piece of government expenditure is examined, interrogated, and everything makes sense. If the state loses the ability to interrogate its own spending because of fiscal incontinence and the leakages we were talking about, (laughs) what you get is that the public sector unmoors the economy from its anti-inflationary bias and you get an expanding cost of living crisis, which is what we have in Ireland. Right. So therefore, 20 years ago, we should have had a total mindset shift in the way economics is discussed here. But we didn't. So we joined the euro and said, ah, don't worry, we don't have to change anything. Mm. Now, of course, what happens over time is that every single time there's a cost overrun or every single time a presenter gets paid a fortune and every single time, a, for example, a, a manager in the top of the civil servants gets paid, what well, this all bleeds into wage inflation and this bleeds into the overall level of prices. Yeah. And just fascinatingly, so for example, the reason the presenters are interesting because at least it's a public thing you can look at, right? If you take the salaries of the main players in this, like, Tuberty, Joe Duffy, Claire Byrne, Miriam McCallaghan, la la la. You look at their salaries. Tuberty's like 500 grand or something. Joe Duffy's three, 350 grand. Claire Byrne, 280 grand. Ray Darcy, 250 grand. Brendan O'Connor, 245 grand. Okay, if you take all these salaries and you compare them to the salaries of presenters in Danish public broadcasting. And the reason I picked Denmark yeah. is Denmark is the same size as us. It's a population of 5 million. So therefore, the economies of scale when it comes to advertising and public spending should be more or less the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you contrast, in Denmark, their presenters on the public TV station have a salary range between 68 grand and 120 tops. Right. Tops. Okay. Right. Okay. And our guys are getting 500 grand. Yeah. And now you can see, so if you're that lackadaisical with public money, you're going to be lackadaisical everywhere. And so... The economic theory tells us without an exchange rate, you've got to be really, really on the ball. Interestingly, the Danes kept their exchange rate. Denmark is the only country, or the only two countries in Western Europe, the Danes and the Swedes, who didn't join the euro. Well, right? actually, that's that's a question I want to ask you there, then, is like, well, two questions. Should we have joined the euro when we did? Ah, uh, big question. Big question, I know. And, and also, has this fiscal incontinence occurred in other countries joined to the euro? Not to the same extent. No. So so if you look at, you know, Germany and France and all this, you don't see the same level of public expenditure going out of out of, out of whack, yeah. out of control. So basically because the we decided rather than re-examine our entire way of looking at the world, we decided we just joined the euro and, and let's see how it goes, right? Okay? okay. So what I'm saying is economic decisions are crucially important. This is the point. You can't just give up your exchange rate. Right. Okay. So then the best thing is it is so if you look at since the euro and you look at the rate of inflation here and think about the rate of inflation as the cost of living and you look at how it has evolved and you look at how we've gone from being the average European country in terms of, ex- of cost of living to the most expensive, mm. what you see is the role of the state enormously. So I'll give you some figures, John, right? In the past 20 years, since we joined the euro, the CPI index, consumer price index, has increased by 48.4% are around 2.2% per annum every year, right? However, when you break down the rate of inflation into its component parts, what you see is a massive disparity between the rate of inflation in those sectors where the government is present and the rate of inflation in those sectors where the government is absent. 
So if you take, for example, water, electricity, housing, that area, yeah. that has increased by 159%. So three times the rate of inflation. Okay. Education has increased by 121%. So over two times the average rate of inflation. Booze and fags yeah. has increased by 100%, again, over two times. And health by 78%, which is you know increasing dramatically over the average. So then mm. the question is, what is the common denominator in all those sectors? Common denominator is the biggest buyer is the state. Yes, okay. So you can see is that the areas where the state is doing the buying, where the state controls the market, so housing, the price of land, supply yeah, of land, yeah. absolutely. You have booze and fags, it's all taxation, right? It's all taxation. Health provided by the state, education provided by the state. Yeah, yeah. In those areas, there's no cost control. And if you contrast this with other areas of inflation, so for example, clothing, footwear, furniture, household appliances, consumer electronics, things that people spend yeah. lots of money yeah, on. Yeah. What you see is in those areas, Irish prices are in line, are even slightly lower than the EU average. So think about okay, that, right? Okay, right. So there's so, something afoot. So the areas where the state is involved, you get this massive fiscal incontinence. The area where the state isn't involved, we're in line with the average. So you have to conclude that what we're seeing at RTE is emblematic of the state not being able to control its own costs. And why? Because it's not its fucking money. It's spending yeah. other people's money, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, people will know this, but it's important to put it all the way down. If you look at, for example, the overruns in state expenditure here in Ireland, right? So, for example, you have a budget. You say, okay, this is going to cost you X, and then it costs Y. Look, the National Children's Hospital jump. Oh, right? Jesus. That's initially, another one that boils my blood. Like, it really does. But initially, the estimate was 670 million, mm. right? Yeah. The project is 72% complete. They've already spent 1.1 billion. So we're talking about overruns of 100%. Yeah. Which is phenomenal. It's expected it'll go to 1.4 billion. And the costs just keep rising. And, and, and nobody seems to be accountable. And nobody's accountable. The Lewis was initially supposed to cost 200 million and be completed by 2001. It ended up costing 800 million. I was finished in 2004. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a, there's a proposal for the Lewis and Cork. They've already point, spent 1.4 million and overspent already on just talking about the bleeding thing. <laughs> talking cheap, Mac. And talking cheap. Talking cheap, as we know, John. Also, Dublin Port Tunnel, the initial cost overrun on Dublin Port Tunnel it was meant to be 450 million. It was overrun by 300 million, right? It's, it's outrageous. And the HSC, HSC, which is receiving 21 billion from the state, the HSC is already running a deficit of 1.6 billion over that 21 billion that was supposed to be its budget. So okay. this, this is... So this is all, this seeps all into costs. This drives up costs. And then people have to say, well, I want higher wages because I just need to live. Yeah, exactly. So this comes down to a lack of expertise and management, which I think we should, we should exactly. talk about a little bit more after this. Absolutely. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, Mac, we have, as you just listed out there, we have these massive overspends on the Lewis and the Children's Hospital and the this and the that and almost every... And, and the difference between the, the Danish presenters and the RTE presenters yeah. being the absolute so, example of this. So, so this is down to, as you say, a lack of expertise and or just pure bad management and a bit of naivety and all the rest. Explain this a bit more. So now we're going to talk about the manager, John. Now, it's always been a bit of a term of abuse in the English-speaking world. Like, oh, your man or your one, they're middle management, right? Yeah. It's always been something like a cliche, right? You'd never want to be the lad walking around with the three colored pens at the top of his white suit. <laughs> in you your know? chinos. Okay, do you remember Exactly. In your chinos, your red pen, your blue pen, your black pen, right? You don't want to be that bloke, right? <laughs> There's always been a slagging of management. Yeah. They haven't got talent, except. Now, I would beg to differ. I think that management is an amazing skill. Yeah. Now, I go back to Napoleon, John. Oh. I go back to Napoleon, right? Napoleon was obsessed with management. And Napoleon introduced the Sciences Po in France, this entire education system, this haute call education system, to create a managerial class to run the country. Right, okay. To allow the French to do their big projet and their grand projet, their big project. Now, the point was he understood without management and an explicitly brilliant managerial class, it doesn't matter how much talent you have and how many ideas you have and how much flamboyance you have, you're always going to be undermined, right? Yeah. So the management class is an absolutely crucial class that our education system, of course, doesn't cater for. It doesn't train people to be managers. So what we get in the English-speaking world, Ireland being very much representative of this, is management is given as a reward for performance in other areas. Yes. Right? And I noticed this when I worked in London years ago in, 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 in the banking world, right? You might get, like, say, a foreign exchange trader who was really brilliant at making money at a foreign exchange. So they're traders, yep. they're hustlers, right? They make loads of money, and then suddenly they become 
the boss of the trading exchange. Yes. So now they've got to manage other traders, but they don't have that skill set. They don't want to do it. But, they want to make money. This, this, That's what their job is. Yeah, right? and this is the, I agree with you entirely because this is something that I saw both in the BBC and particularly in RTE. It's absolutely endemic. You know, these places are full of lifers, guys who go in after college, after school, whatever, and they're there for life with the pensions, the whole lot. But they go in as creative or technical staff, engineers or researchers that go on to be producers. And then they get to, a, you know, the top of their game. And some of them are good. Some of them aren't so good, you know, whatever. But the only place to go then for them is into management, which they're not trained yes. for. And they're also end up managing their mates. So one so day so their colleagues. And the, yeah. So and this is so, where this incontinence comes from, I would imagine. You're absolutely right. And to go back to Napoleon, Napoleon had a great expression about governance. So management and governance are the same thing, right? Mm. And Napoleon said, to govern is to choose. It's an amazing expression, right? So basically governing anything, you have to make choices. Yes or no. Yeah. No, you can't have that. It's like dealing with children. No, you cannot have your rattle. So when Ryan Tuberty's agent comes in and says, I'm going to throw this out of the pram, yeah, yeah. you say, well, fuck off, throw it out of the pram. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But if you're managing your mates, as you say, it's very, very difficult. Yeah. So what you have, then, that's the, the first thing is, so the, the reward structure in companies, jaundices manage away from proper management and into talent are rewards for other abilities, yeah. which are in management. That's the first thing. And the second, and it's not just the private sector, the public sector, it's the private sector, it's everywhere, yeah, right? Yeah. Because you don't have a management class that is actually extremely good at managing resources, right? What you get is you get people who are, look completely out of their depth. Mm. So for example, the chief because financial officer of Ort, because they are out of their depth, right? The chief financial officer of RTE saying, your man says, how much do you earn? He says, I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, he was a joke. He was a joke. But the fellow who's actually meant to hold the purse strings, not knowing how much money is coming in and out and how much he owns. Right. So this is a great example. That's the first thing about management, right? Is that it is a profession that has been undermined in the English speaking world. Number one. Number two is the financialization of the economy. And this is a really important point. And this brings me back to Thames Water and brings me back to a huge amount of scandals. Yeah. Is that when you link management to something like a share price or something like a top line performance, what you will always get is managers cutting costs in order to ingratiate themselves to the bottom line and in order to make money. So I'll give you the example of Thames Water, right? What basically happened in Thames Water, right? You have a utility, mm. so you're producing water, so you're charging for water, so it should be a really simple business. You make sure that your costs are X, your revenues are Y, that's fine. Yeah. They start with no, absolutely no debt. But because a utility, and this is, goes down, do you remember all the Irish water and all that sort of stuff oh, yeah, about, yeah. about privatizing, right? Yeah. Because a utility throws off a stream of income every single year, whether you're, making, you're producing gas or you're producing water or you're producing electricity, you have a stream of income, right? So that stream of income is constant. When interest rates fall dramatically, as they did in the last 20 years, right, that stream of income can be used to pay more and more and more debt. Yeah. So that attracts into this business, and this is huge for the whole global economy, debt buyout operators. So what they do is when the company is privatized, it's owned by shareholders, right? These debt buyout guys come in and they buy the entire company using debt. Yeah. And so they lumber the company with enormous amounts of debt, which all can be paid in the good times by the stream of income, which is 
the revenues from water. But that's all predicated on two things. One is the stream of income coming from water, being able to go up all the time, i.e. you could increase the water charges. And two, the rate of interest remaining very, very low so you can service the debt. Yeah. Now, what has happened in Thames Water and what has happened all over the world is the rate of interest has gone from zero to five. Suddenly that debt is much greater. The repayments of that debt are much greater. And going back to the market, trying to roll over the debt is much more expensive than the stream of income coming from providing water. And the companies go bust. But they go bust not because the companies are bad, but because the financial engineering driven by the new management who aren't managers, they're just actually mafiosi profit heisters, destroys the company. So you have a crazy situation in England where the water companies bust, not because the water company can't provide water, but because it's been used as a junket for financiers to extract income out of the company. And all they're doing, John, is the amazing thing is, right, they're increasing debt, so they're borrowing loads of money. Let's say they borrow 100 million. Mm. And what they do then is they massively increase the dividends to the shareholders. But the problem is the shareholders are only themselves because they've just bought the company. So basically the company ends up being almost like a rinse and repeat operation for the extraction of value. And at the end of the day, it goes bust. But those guys are living in the Cayman Islands and they don't give a fuck, right? They've got out, they've got their money, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So think about, so it's not just the RTE ridiculously poor management. There is something going on in the global environment of financialization in the private sector, plus very, very poor cost controls in the public sector. And of course, who pays for everything? The consumer. Yeah. Because all these costs are passed on to the consumer, right? And that's exactly where we are now. And then finally, what you see then is this extraordinary increase in the rate of inflation progressively over time in those parts of the economy where either the public sector can't control it or private sector bandits driven by financialization come in and gouge the companies. All the while, the rate of inflation rises, people's sense of their take-home wage falls, and you get this ridiculous situation where we have in Ireland, which is you have a rich country, but everybody feels poor. Yeah. And that's where we're getting to. And the, the final part of this is back to our Wimbledon conversation, John, which is in an economy which is driven by rapacious managers who are very bad at their jobs because there's no managerial legacy, no managerial inheritance, no managerial tradition. So you're just promoting people willy-nilly, who have no abilities in that specific area. And management could be boring, but it's basically, it's about how do you use your resources in the best possible way. Yeah, yeah. So what happens then is that as the rate of inflation rises and the costs rise and wages rise and the cost of materials rise, et cetera, et cetera, small businesses who are, John, our heroes in this podcast, don't forget. Always are, are Mike, always are. Yeah, they always are because... Because we're a small business. Yes. That's why. <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, small businesses then can't compete for talent because the talent has been driven up. The wages of the talent, as we see in the RTE case, even yeah. though we're not too sure that they're really talent. Yeah. But then what happens is the small companies that need to be able to compete for resources, for rents, for talent, for finance, they get elbowed out. And only big companies, right? that in the case of Ireland are multinationals who have a tax arbitrage game 
right? Only they can survive in this incredibly expensive country. And increasingly then the economy becomes more and more and more dependent on them. Yeah. And less and less opportunistic for our own people. And that's the sort of Wimbledon model where you have this great tournament, but no Brits in it. Yeah. So Ireland is a great economy, but no paddies in it, right? <laughs> no paddy businesses. Yes. Because yeah, yeah. the businesses are all the foreign talent. And that's, I think, as I about as I decide to go down, maybe have a another scrumpy jack. Cider. And mid- oh, they've they've much better they've much better names than scrumpy jack, you know. <laughs> down in Somerset now, John. Just just as a little uh, thinking ahead for listeners, we've done the European economy. We've done the, talk about the British economy. We've talked about the Irish economy. On Thursday, we're going to talk about the big one, the German economy, and what is going okay. on in Germany. Because what is going on in Germany? is the most important question for what is going on in Europe. So we will be leaving Somerset. We will be double backing to Berlin. And then that's the end of the summer travels. Okay. So we'll talk Germany in a couple of days time. Fantastic. See you then.